0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy, I'm Amy McPhee-Olivest. I first encountered feminism when I was a freshman in college. I was in an English class, and one of our main textbooks was on critical theory, which described different ways of approaching works of literature. So you can approach a work through a historical lens, looking at uh, what was going on in the world in order to understand that text. You can look at a work of literature through a biographical lens, where you see the book as a kind of a reflection of the author's personal point of view. You can analyze a work through a Marxist lens where you're looking at the role that economics and class play in that work of literature, or you can approach the work with a feminist lens, looking at women and um, at gender power dynamics in the book. So I remember encountering um, the term feminism in that context. I don't recall ever doing any feminist critique of any literature or history for the entire rest of my college education, which led me to be really uh, extremely frustrated later in life. But at least my introduction to the concept of feminism was really quite positive. It was just one legitimate way of many legitimate ways of looking at literature and looking at the world. And because I hadn't gotten any messages really positive or negative about feminism in my family growing up, And because I was learning about it as a perfectly valid criticism in the context of being at a super conservative university, I just added it to my toolbox of thought without much drama. And I wanted to share that anecdote um, and that little bit of my personal history because it's relevant to our discussion today in a couple different ways. First of all, I was shocked later in life when I discovered that feminism was such a terrible, bad, threatening word to some people. And I often heard and still hear people refer to quote unquote radical feminism or quote unquote militant feminism with a lot of fear and disdain and disgust. And I hear people lump all people who acknowledge, you know, inequities in gender, they lump them all into the same category of, of these villainous radical feminists. Um, But honestly, I had actually never read any real radical feminism until I did this podcast project. And I was curious about it. I thought, what really is radical feminism and as opposed to what other kinds of feminisms are there? So when I saw that sexual politics was one of the defining texts of radical feminism, I wanted to read it so that I would understand what people were talking about when they talked about radical feminism. Secondly, I realized reading Kate Millett's Sexual Politics that I would probably not have been learning feminist literary theory in college if she had not written Sexual Politics. And then the third thing is that my reading partner today is Maxine Hanks and maxine hanks is a renowned feminist theologian historian and writer in the mormon world and beyond and she's a seasoned expert on feminisms and feminist approaches as a student and a teacher and a writer and maxine i am so incredibly honored that you're with us to share your wisdom about 60s and 70s feminism and about kate millett's work i'm so excited you're here thanks for being here today Oh, gosh,
1: Amy, thank you. It's actually quite an honor for me to be here. I've really loved your podcast and what you're doing. I'm so impressed with it. And um, I love the way that you talk about feminism, the the ways that you approach it, and the ways that you use feminism to break down patriarchy. So I'm pretty excited to be here as well.
0: Fantastic, Maxine. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, like we said before, I, I think your experience will help us and be so useful as we approach Kate Millett's work because this book can be kind of intimidating, I feel like. So um So let's dig in. And first, let's introduce Kate Millett as an author. um, And then we'll talk about her book a little bit. So I'll acquaint listeners with Kate Millett. She was born Catherine Murray Millett on September 14th, 1934 in St. Paul, Minnesota. According to her, she was afraid of her father. He was an engineer, and he beat her when she was a kid. He was an alcoholic, and he abandoned the family when she was 14, which consigned them to what she described as a life of genteel poverty. The Millets were Irish Catholic, and Kate attended parochial schools in St. Paul throughout her childhood. Kate Millett earned a bachelor's degree with honors in 1956 from the University of Minnesota, and two years later, she was awarded a master's degree with first-class honors from the University of Oxford. So in England, that's a huge jump for her, a huge, I'm sure, broadening of her horizons when she uh, did that master's degree. After teaching English briefly at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro after her master's degree, she moved to New York City to pursue a career as an artist and to support herself, she taught kindergarten in Harlem in New York City. In 1961, another big move, she moved to Tokyo, where she taught English at Waseda University and also studied sculpting. She ended up marrying a Japanese sculptor named Fumio Yoshimura in 1965, and the couple moved to New York City again, where Millett studied English and philosophy at Barnard College. The couple later divorced in 1985. But while she was there in New York City, she pursued a doctorate at Columbia University. And in 1970, she was awarded a PhD with distinction from Columbia. And her thesis, her doctoral thesis, was a work combining literary analysis with sociology and anthropology. And that thesis was published as Sexual Politics. And that's the book that we're reading this week.
1: Yes, and I want to just add really quickly, mm-hmm. um, along with, you know, her difficult background and having to find her own path coming from an abusive family, I want to mention her personal struggles within academia, mm-hmm. which, which is a huge theme for these leading feminists in in the second wave, you know, trying to find their place as a feminist within a male-dominated academic uh, environment. Um, that was a huge struggle for women like Kate and all of the others who were working in academia. And she exerted to fit in and find approval of male mentors and to really succeed. So she towed the line yet she had to drop out of her PhD Mm -hmm. program due to, as she described it, living a double life as an artist and an academic. So the Bohemian artist life and the serious scholar and also due to losing her university job, which was enabling her to be there. You know, without that job, she couldn't pay for a program. You know, she couldn't stay in school. And that's the reality, you know, of so many women who don't come from privilege, wh- whose families will pay for their education. And she was fired because of her support and her participation of a student the student protests that were happening on campus um, Mm. and the activism. So she opens her book by saying that uh, this book happened because I got fired, Mm. which is such a classic scenario for these groundbreaking feminists, you know, who um, couldn't fit in, didn't fit in. And that shaped them in a way that forced them to do this feminist Thing that they did, you know. So okay. the the sexism was was and, and the lack of of belonging or or um, support was the mother of necessity for so many feminist works in this in the sixties and seventies. Um, she needed money and couldn't continue teaching, so because she lost her job. So she decided, okay, I'll publish my thesis. (laughs) Mm. And that worked. She was desperate and pragmatic due to the realities of gender and economics. And she published her book and it birthed radical feminist discourse.
0: Amazing. Thanks for adding that. So as you said, the, the book that she, so her, her PhD dissertation was published. I'm sure she didn't expect it to be the success it was, but it was like literally an overnight success and transferred Millett into a public figure actually right away. Um, and and having that fame was sometimes hard on her. It was hard for her mental health um, and, and kind of being in the spotlight. One example of that is that while she was speaking about sexual liberation at Columbia University, there was a woman in the audience that just like Unprompted piped up and and just confronted her and said, Why why don't you say you're a lesbian here openly? You said you were a lesbian in the past. And so Millet was really put on the spot, but she hesitantly responded, Yes, I am a lesbian. And then a couple of weeks later, Time magazine published an article called uh, Women's Lib, A Second Look. And that article reported that Millet had admitted she was bisexual, which was true. And Time then reported that it would, th- that admission that she wasn't straight basically would likely discredit her as a spokesperson for the feminist movement because it, and, and this is a quote, it quote, reinforced the views of those skeptics who routinely dismiss all liberationists as lesbians, end quote. And that was true. Listeners will remember that, um, Betty Friedan famously referred to f- to lesbian feminists as the lavender menace. And um, there was a lot of pressure on queer women to stay in the closet at the time because it would, they felt it would discredit the movement within the mainstream establishment. And I just feel for her being called out like that publicly and then having mm. time, write an article on her personal life. I just, I think that would have been so, so hard. Oh, Yeah. Oh, I think
1: incredibly um difficult with all of the other stresses and tensions she was trying to navigate. And this really brings up an important point because second wave feminism in the sixties and seventies was largely led by, as I said, white privileged academic women, many of whom were straight, or at least the straight women were sort of put out front. <laughs> mm. And lesbians often found themselves at the margins of the movement or behind the scenes supporting the straight feminists at the forefront because the straight feminists like Gloria Steinem gave feminism legitimacy to the straight audiences they were trying to reach. Mm-hmm. Even though it was, it was lesbian experience and perspective in many ways helped establish the radical female perspective or woman-centric views that birthed radical feminism and countered the male-centric perspectives and discourses. I mean, lesbian experience, the lesbian lens really really helped define that and and give straight women the confidence and the courage to to really own that and articulate that. So lesbian women were in in a way central to the formation of of the radical feminism and its female centric view as a response to male centrism, but yet they were marginal in in the um in the movement. And also it was it was a vital shift in discourse and consciousness simply to put women first as central, mm-hmm. you know, their views, their perspectives, their voices as primary rather than marginal mm-hmm. and, and, and not as the other to male experience to be written upon by male perspective. So that mm-hmm. was the other thing that helped to cross those gulfs and those boundaries was just the common need to put female experience, whatever, you know, whatever context it came from, no matter how different those female experiences were, just putting female experience first, mm. and as primary and central, not marginal was, mm-hmm. um, was really crucial and and really bonding across the cultural divides. Mm.
0: Well, that'll be um, really appreciated by listeners who have been with us for the beginning and listened to all of these episodes and maybe even read some of the books along the way um and really understanding the context that Beauvoir you know we, we've talked about it over and over again that that concept of that her her noticing and articulating that the man is the one and the woman is the other that she's the second sex mm-hmm. and so yeah mm-hmm. this is a it, it's really a revolutionary moment. It really was, uh, you know, a revolution, this women's lib movement in the seventies. I feel like they're doing things, taking those ideas and, and, um, developing them in ways that had never been done before. Mm-hmm. So, so Millett did become a spokesperson, right. Of, uh, for the, you know, the kind of radical feminism, um, following the success of her book, sexual politics, She also struggled a bit with kind of the perception of her as arrogant and elitist. And she talked about that in a book in 1974 called Flying. But I just wanted to bring that up because um, listeners will remember our episode on Gloria Steinem's speech, Living the Revolution, where Steinem says that a lot of feminist writing is just too academic and inaccessible. And it makes it kind of just useless to real people because that's not... You know the way real people talk, and it's not something that's that's even understandable to people who haven't been to graduate school, and especially if they haven't been to graduate school in women's studies. It's just like they don't they don't even know. First of all, sometimes that those books exist, so it can't help anybody, <laughs> and then also <laughs> sometimes when they find, you know, when they try to read it, it's like I, I don't even understand this academic language. Um, and so, I mean, I just wanted to bring that up that that she was criticized that. Right from the very beginning and um and some readers might find it just quite dense and too highbrow. Yeah, What's your thought it, on that, Maxine? It, oh,
1: exactly. This is such an important point. This is another major tension that emerges in second wave feminism and in the 70s. This this tension between the academic feminists mm-hmm. who were who had Ivy League educations and and were speaking, you know, academic and scholarly discourse versus You know, the woman in the street, the woman at home, the woman in the workplace, the popular feminist Mm -hmm. and, and, and their language, part of this, this tension or this distance was that in the sixties, um, the medium for deep cultural discussion was not the internet. We didn't have the internet and, and it wasn't really treated very much on news programs, which focused on, on politics and, and current events. The, the medium for deep discussion of, about culture and cultural change was, was the academy, you know, mm-hmm. and also publications. So, books and articles were where these discussions were happening in the 60s. And that was before mass media was engaging these topics and long before cable TV and internet. So, mm-hmm. Kate and women like her had to focus on Uh, male scholars and academics and male elite male writers, that was where the conversations were really happening in the 60s.
0: Yeah, that's great. Okay, one last thing about Kate Millett um, is that she was kind of known to be one of the first writers to describe the modern concept of patriarchy as the society-wide subjugation of women. And in, and she's really in the tradition of Beauvoir in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it hadn't been done very many times, right? I mean, she she really was kind of like the heir of Beauvoir, as she does a similar project. But um, her biographer, Gail Graham Yates, said that, quote, Millett articulated a theory of patriarchy and conceptualized the gender and sexual oppression of women in terms that demanded a sex role revolution with radical changes of personal and family lifestyles, end quote. And um, just to compare, I mean, Betty Friedan's focus... Was really more to work within the existing system, right? Just to kind of improve leadership opportunities, improve economic independence for women. Like women go back to school, get a liberal arts degree. Like go get a job. You know, um, achieve your own individual potential, but kind of within the existing structure. And Millet, as again, and this is maybe, and you and you can help us understand this more. That that's maybe the. A, a difference that distinguishes someone as a radical feminist where she's going like, oh, no, no, this is not like a cosmetic remodel. We're taking the house down. Like, we're we're going (laughs) to build something new, right? So if you could um, kind of give us some more, some larger context about the 1960s and 70s and really understanding the importance of, of Kate Millett's contribution with this book. Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, that tension that you identify um between Millett and Ferdan is is very present in the difference between both first wave feminism and second wave feminism so um, first wave feminism in you know the 19th century and second wave feminism in the 20th century um that difference between trying to find your place within existing systems versus redoing the existing systems. That's that's a big shift between first and second wave feminism, but it's also a big shift between um, some of the 60s feminism of the second wave and the 70s feminism of the second wave. Second wave feminism begins in about 1960 and goes to about 1990. And so it encompasses some major shifts. So yeah, let me, let me talk just a little bit about both of those things, the second wave feminism as opposed to first wave and then the, the, ad, the different tensions and aspects within second wave feminism. Um, you know, Second wave feminism, as I said, was born in 1960 because there was a real need for a whole new wave of feminism, which had kind of ebbed after the 1920s although not totally. I mean, feminism surges in the 1920s with the women's vote and the roaring 20s. And then it kind of ebbs in the 30s with the depression. Then it comes back huge in the 40s with World War II when women have opportunities and in fact are forced by necessity, the mother of invention, to go into the workplace in larger numbers than ever before and do traditionally male jobs. I mean, that was a huge boost to feminism. But then it retracted retrenched hugely in the Mm fifties with when the war was over and the nuclear father was promoted and women were supposed to go back home and, and be homemakers. So the sixties are again, this whole new surge. It was time. If you're going to alternate every decade, you know, between feminism and retrenchment, Mm -hmm. the sixties was this huge radical burst, this shattering. And, and there was just a real need for a whole new wave. And so the sixties gave birth to that new wave. of feminism, the second wave. Um, and you know, that's, that's partly because of the, the radicalism and liberalism that was happening generally in academia and in society, um, promoted by a lot of liberal men, um, who were leftists. And I'll get into that in a minute, but first wave feminism really, uh, kind of gave birth to liberal and cultural feminisms, which were both focused on advancing women's concerns and finding equal status within existing systems. So liberal and cultural feminism of the first wave were trying to gain inclusion in, um, in society and in male systems. Um, Liberal feminism was more focused on the equality of men and women, sort of reducing, or diminishing the differences and giving them the same rights. Whereas cultural feminism was focused a bit more on the unique um, empowerment and vision that women had to offer and bring to the world in terms of cultural form and temperance and, and things like that. Um, so, but but it was addressing male privilege. Both liberal and cultural feminisms of the first wave were we're tackling male privilege and male only spheres and also political equality and, and trying to give men and women equal value. Um, So second wave feminism took it way further. It was time for a movement that would look at those existing systems and look at the roots of those existing systems and undo, unpack, reconstruct, dismantle those roots. Of the existing systems of patriarchy, the religions, the structures, the politics, the sexual relations, the family. Um, so, second wave feminism tended to focus on finding the roots of of patriarchal structures and then dismantling them. And that's what the word radical um, comes from: is the root. A radical addresses the root of the problem. So, the, mm. the second wave gave birth to radical feminism, um, and that really focused on the roots of sexism that were embedded in the systems. And, and so it had to be identified and it had to be named. You had to name it, call it out, you know, and then tear it apart, <laughs> dismantle it. Mm-hmm. So the, the radical feminism, which, which came to occupy the second wave, just like liberal feminism, cultural feminism had occupied and occupied and defined the first wave of feminism in America. Radical feminism really defined the second wave. And this this context of second wave feminism and the, the phases of it in the 60s and 70s and 80s really give important context to understand why Kate Millett did what she did, why she approached it the way she did, um, and why her book, which occurred in 1970, it's published right at this point this, of shift from the 60s and 70s feminism, and, and why it was... It took off and was such an important text because it embodied that shift. Her work, her voice, her book embodied the shift from the male-centric to the female-centric commenting on the male-centric views in the movement. And her book embodied the shift from the the private academic elite to the more popular, the widespread, and the mainstream. So Kate's book launches the 70s phase of radical feminism as doable, real, accessible, and far wider than just in the academy. Um, And so this is why Kate Millett's book, Sexual Politics, spends so much focus and energy on addressing the sexism, the male chauvinism, the misogyny of the men in the new left, and why she critiques so vigorously and specifically D.H. Lawrence and Henry Miller and Norman Mailer. Um, she's, she's not only addressing the sexism and, and the, the male centric view imposed onto women in their bodies. She's addressing the violent Mm. sexual imagery and views that they have of women in their writings. And she's, she's quoting them and she's shocking people with, you know, saying, are you aware that this is what these men are actually, these so-called enlightened liberal men of the new left are actually saying in their work about women. Mm -hmm. So it was so important that she called that out and that she quoted them, the very worst, most violent parts of their writing. So she really, Kate Millett really nails the problem that in that feminists were facing in liberalism and in the new left, that that while women were trying to, to find their voice and share their voice and unpack the sexist structures and roots of, of American culture, they were dealing with an assault on their bodies and their psyches at the same time.
0: Mm.
1: And it's interesting and predictable that of course, um, the men would respond (laughs) very negatively. Mm -hmm. So Norman Mailer, you know, writes a major attack on Kate Millett in her book. Um, And I think it was titled, he wrote this article, I think it was called The Prisoner of Sex, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where he projects back onto her, the very prison that she's trying to describe that women have found themselves in. And he's accusing her of creating that prison Mm -hmm. with her, with her work and with her rhetoric. And that's such a common backlash Mm -hmm. that happens. Women try to articulate a problem. Feminists articulate a double bind. And then they're accused of creating the very thing that they're articulating. Mm -hmm.
0: Wow. Well, Maxine, I have to say that was so helpful. That, um, That summary and all of that context and just kind of laying out Kind of the lay of the land at the that at that time is so helpful as we um, approach this book because as I said I I mean I opened it and um, I was just shocked immediately by like whoa I have never read anything like this before and I because I didn't have context about what she was doing I just found it um, quite. I mean, off-putting, honestly, and like scandalizing, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I didn't understand. And then as I got further in, I was like, oh, now, now I understand what she's doing. But um, that was really, really useful. So I so appreciate you setting the the stage for Millett's work. And um, I'm really looking forward to um, quoting some passages from her book and, and hearing what you think of them. And we'll tackle that on our next episode.